the name of the show is What Had Happened Was, and what I'd like to do is ask people to say what had happened was and kind of finish the sentence. Well, what had happened was I literally couldn't get this case off my mind. It haunted me. It puzzled me. I lived near where all of this occurred, and I just felt obligated to tell what I knew and to find as many answers to the unanswered questions as possible. Hey, friends, it's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and my board of advisors have spoken. They said they wanted a murder show next, so a murder show you're getting. But wait a minute, was it actually murder? Former Dayton Daily News and Cincinnati Inquirer reporter Janice Heisel lays out one of the most sad and controversial cases in recent Ohio history in her book, Submerge, Ryan Whitmer, His Drowned Bride, and the Justice System. Janice covered nearly every aspect of Ryan Whitmer's three trials on charges that he drowned his young bride, Sarah, in the bathtub of their Warren County home. She told me how pig brains, a supposed confession, and porn played a role in this tragic story. The case will leave you scratching your head, but I'm hoping that the What Had Happened Was podcast won't. This podcast is brought to you by the fine folks over at Cox Digital Marketing. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you find shows you just love. Subscribe, tell all your friends, and rate this show. You can also join the recently launched What Had Happened Was Advisors. This Facebook group is an easy way to keep up with episodes and give me feedback and suggestions. I want to hear from you, and I know you're going to like hearing from Janice. Here is our talk about her book, Submerged. Thanks for coming all the way in here from Cincinnati, right? Actually, I live just north of Cincinnati in Warren County, out by Kings Island. So, but yeah, it was a, my pleasure to be here. I'm back in Dayton, a town I actually loved a lot, miss a lot. You left Dayton, went mm-hmm. down to Cincinnati. Did you cover the case for Dayton or for Cincinnati? I was there for the Cincinnati Inquirer um, covering the case that I wrote about. It was, it was the Ryan Widmer case. This case, as you know, was about a 24-year-old woman who drowned in her bathtub. And her husband of only four months, Ryan, and he was then 27, was accused of murder. Now, what happened, a lot of people who knew Ryan believed there was no way that he could do this. However, we've all seen, like, for example, a friend who says, my husband would never cheat on me, and then the husband does, or vice versa, the wife would never cheat on the husband. And so you never really know what is exactly going on within the confines of a relationship so the basis of the case are that it was a young couple she ends up dead the police say that he did it basically right the prosecutors uh charge him he goes to court he is convicted and then is uh, appealed well here is the path the case took it was i like to call it a torturous route through the criminal justice system because the very first trial did end with a guilty verdict however because a juror came forward and described some jury shenanigans. Like what were the shenanigans? The shenanigans involved jurors doing home experiments to see how long it takes a body to air dry after bathing or showering. Okay. Now the jurors in just about any case are required to take their oath and the judge gives them instructions to make their decisions based only on the evidence presented in the courtroom. So they're not supposed to do any outside investigation. And this 
eventually was viewed as a violation of those rules. The prosecution tried to argue that these were not experiments, but there was just observations that the jurors were making. But the defense came out and said, look, some jurors were even laying naked on the carpet. That's not an ordinary life experience. You don't just take a shower or a bath and lie down on the carpet right. naked. It, people just don't do that in everyday life. You don't drip dry as of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And that did lead to the first conviction being overturned. And, of course, then that became extraordinary. It's very rare that you would ever hear of a case having something like that happen. So then trial two happens in 2010. That particular jury was unable to reach a unanimous decision, which would be required for a conviction. And then it went to trial finally in 2011, ending in the conviction of Ryan Widmer. He was sentenced to the only um, sentence available, which is 15 years to life. To this day, Ryan maintains that he is innocent. And there are a number of people who believe that he possibly could be, despite not one, not two, but three trials. And it kind of reminds me of this is another podcast out there, um, a similar a case where a man was shot like six times yeah. for the same. You know what I'm talking about? I'm familiar with that. Yes. I yeah. actually remember doing some research at the time because, you know, how editors will ask you, can you put this into context? Well, yeah. there, nobody really keeps statistics or does studies on. There are a few cases I had more more trials for a single individual. And the most I found was six, a case went to trial six times. In the case of Ryan Widmer, his supporters, the people who still stand by him, believe strongly that there were problems with the investigation. The main investigator had very little experience from a small township in Warren County. I happen to know that investigator prior to the Widmer case, and I had what I would call a nice professional relationship with him. He's the kind of guy that well, if I would see him maybe out in the community, we would stop and chat. Hello, very, you know, joke around, whatever. A nice relationship with him. But I will say this, that I do think he liked being quoted and I liked getting quotes. So it was a nice symbiotic relationship. <laughs> You're a reporter. You want the story. You want the quotes. As the case wore on, there were a lot of uh, concerns that were raised about that particular police officer and his level of experience and perhaps maybe just developing like a tunnel vision and not looking at, gee, is it possible that this young lady could have suffered from some medical condition that resulted in her drowning? But they didn't find any medical condition, did they? No, but the problem is the accusation on the part of the defense is that they didn't even look. For example, I know that one portion of the brain that controls narcolepsy was not examined by the coroner. He testified that he did not examine that part of the brain. And a lot of people were shocked when he was asked, do you know what part of the brain to examine for that? And he did not know. Whoa. I mean, again, as the case went on, there were a lot of facts that bubbled to the surface. So part of the reason my book is named Submerged is because I feel like a lot of information was submerged. And of course, Sarah Widmer was submerged. And so it kind of has like a double meaning. And I don't take a stance on whether Ryan is guilty or innocent. I viewed it as being my job to try to bring those facts to light that were under the surface to show those to people and let people make up their own mind. So this book is not like trying to exonerate him or get him out of jail or anything necessarily. Or what was the purpose? Because a lot of people do write books. They think 
this is the book that's going to prove one way or another. Well, I'm not naive enough to think that if I were to do something like that, that that would be the result because it requires court action. Right. My goal was to enable people to examine their own perceptions, not just about the Widmer case, but about many things in their lives. Because a lot of times we will develop an opinion based on tiny bit of information. And then later we have information that contradicts that opinion. We tend to dismiss it because we want to be right. Mm -hmm. Is that what happened in this case? Some people think it is. I think it's a question worth exploring, not just for this case, but in pretty much all factors of our lives. Here I am, I'm a reporter. I'm trying to report on the various sides of this story. And as the case developed, it became more and more complicated. It became, to me, more and more fascinating because it seemed as though for every sinister-looking fact that there was, there was an interpretation of that fact that could be viewed as not so sinister. Maybe even that the guy didn't do it. So what do you mean it looked like he didn't do it? Well, to some people, again, I wasn't sure what to think of this because I was baffled every time I thought I had my mind kind of made up. And I always tried to be aware of my own perceptions and opinions because I had a very, very wise editor tell me way back in the day when I had a very strong reaction. I said, I don't know whether I can cover this event and be fair. I just, I'm really concerned. He goes, well, you know what? Everybody in this room is going to have an opinion. It was actually an abortion issue. I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to be fair. And he said, you know, that is your calling. That is your responsibility as a professional. I was very new reporter. I was pretty fresh out of college and struggling with how to handle a big topic like abortion just coming out of college. A technique I developed to help me try to gauge the fairness of my reporting Whenever I felt I was having a very strong, like, gut-feeling reaction to any case I covered, what I typically would do is print out my rough draft that I turned into my editor, and I would take three highlighters. I would use one color for one side of the story, one color for the other side of the story, and a third color for more neutral information. Okay. And that was my way to visually represent and try to strike a balance among the, the three competing possible interests here. And it, it seemed to serve me very well over the years. It was kind of just a little tactic that I used to help me. Reporters are people too. And I think anybody who hasn't taken the time to do that introspection and think about how do I feel about this case, they're doing their readers or their listeners or viewers a disservice. But reporters are so busy, I think a lot of times that evaluation doesn't happen. But I tried really hard, and I'm not saying I'm sitting here as a paragon of excellence or perfection in any way, but I did try really, really hard to, to provide a balanced, fair, and accurate report. Anyone who uses the word objective kind of drives me crazy because there's no such thing. All of us are human beings. What was it about the case where you start to think that maybe he didn't do it and maybe the facts aren't what they seem to be? There was a lot of information that we didn't know until the case went to trial. And when the case went to trial the very first time, which was the death of Sarah Widmer, his wife, happened in 2008. It was 2009 by the time the case went to trial. While the prosecution was still presenting its side of the case, usually it's, that's the, the point of the case where everybody in the courtroom, including reporters, 
you'll find yourself going, ooh, that looks bad. Ooh, that looks bad. Right. And there was a degree of that. However, there was one thing that happened that made me sit up straight in my chair and go, wow, what is this? Um, one of the witnesses for the prosecution was asked by the defense, so how did this drowning happen? We've been sitting here for almost a week listening to all the prosecution witnesses. Please describe the scenario that you think occurred here, especially because there were no defensive wounds on the lady who drowned. I thought that was a very interesting fact. How do you drown someone and leave no banged up knuckles, knees, elbows, no broken fingernails, nothing like that. And the witness began to say, well, it could have happened in the bathtub, the toilet, the sink, forward or backward. And I just had this reaction. I thought, my gosh, they've got a guy on trial for murder and they don't even know what happened here. Wow. And then the prosecutors changed a document called a Bill of Particulars. This particular document says, here is how we think the killing occurred in the case of a murder. They changed it to read that it happened in the bathtub to bathtub or some other water-containing fixture. I thought, wow, that's weird. And to my knowledge, the jury was never allowed to know that that change happened, that happened. to okay. that document. And that just made me wonder how solid was this case on the part of the prosecution? That was a big, almost red flag, I would say, that just made me think a lot more critically about what I was hearing in the courtroom. There were a couple things that stood out to me that were very unusual that had not come out at all during Ryan's trials. Probably the most compelling fact, when Sarah Widmer went up to take her bath that night, according to a note that Ryan wrote for his lawyers, she was walking on her tippy toes. And he said, hey, why are you walking on your tiptoes? She completely blew off the question, didn't answer, said, I love you. I'm going up to take my bath. And when I saw that, I thought it was chilling. And the reason I thought it was chilling was because I found out that one of the disorders that she's suspected of having can cause partial paralysis of the feet or legs. Mm. Wow. And if you can imagine a person having your legs possibly give out from underneath you while you're either stepping into or out of a bathtub, I could see where you could possibly drown if you are not able to move. That was never explored during any of Ryan's trials. And why just, did his lawyers bring it up? They perhaps didn't recognize the possible significance of that. And also because he wrote it in a statement and he didn't testify, they may have had difficulty introducing it. The other thing about Sarah Widmer that stood out to me as I did my research was that one of the other disorders for Sarah that's suspected involves bony abnormalities. These bony abnormalities are associated with a condition called long QT syndrome. Now, this long QT syndrome can remain dormant for years, decades even. And long QT syndrome is a heart rhythm disturbance. And it can be associated with paralysis and things like that. Reading these documents, and I looked at pictures of Sarah, her ears are set so low that they're abnormally low. And again, that is one of the hallmarks of this condition for which she was never tested. And one of the big fights that's continuing to this day is whether the defense would be allowed to test Sarah's DNA 
for some of these suspected conditions. The prosecution's argument against that is, well, she still could have had this condition and been a homicide victim. And that is certainly true. However, the defense reaction to that is, would you think that this would have been important for a jury to know if, in fact, she would test positive or at least have the hallmarks of this specific disorder? So that is still playing out in the courts. There was a an oral argument held here in Dayton, Ohio, in federal court. And I attended that just as an ordinary citizen in 2015. As we sit here, there has not been a final decision rendered in that it's not an appeal case, but it's sort of like an appeal. It's called a writ of habeas corpus uh-huh. or habeas corpus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that Latin is, correctly. Is it or habeas? I, it's, I can spell <laughs> it <laughs> since I made most of my living doing print work. I can spell it. So, uh, But that's what it is. And there are many other contentions. But that is one of the main ones that I think is the, one of the most interesting is that she was never tested, not, a, not by her own doctor or she fell asleep in odd places. For example, Ryan stated to me that she even fell asleep in mid-sentence once. She was known as Sleeper. She had a little name tag at a friend's baby shower. They had nicknames for all of the ladies who were in attendance. And it hers said Sleeper because she fell asleep all the time. Huh. But then it was established that she was able to perform her job as a dental hygienist without falling asleep. But how weird is it that she would go out to her car and sleep before work and during lunch? That's kind of unusual for a 24-year-old woman to do that on a regular basis. And the testimony did establish that that is what she did. And the day before she died, the same day, everybody at her work said she said she didn't feel well. Was she perhaps having some kind of a precursor to a seizure, which again was not really tested? There were some efforts to find that during the autopsy, but it was established that there were some things that weren't done, tests that were not done. Now, the counter argument to that is we can't test for everything. It just depends on how you look at it. And that's one of the most fascinating but maddening aspects of this case. For just about every fact that looks really bad, there's another way of looking at it. Wasn't there about something about pig brains too? Oh, geez. This case had so many strange and unusual aspects. And one of the most memorable for me was the fact that during the last trial, the defense brought in real pig brains to show the juror, to illustrate an example to the jury. And you might ask, what the heck were they trying to show with pig brains? We're going to get back to those pig brains in just one second. But first, I want to tell you that it is now easier than ever to find the What Had Happened Was podcast. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, Google Play, and all those kind of places. You can now find select episodes on the WHIO app for Roku, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV. The podcast also has a special spot on Dane.com's homepage. Now back to those pig brains. Yeah, I know it's gross. Well, as gross as this is, pig brains are very similar to human brains. And the idea is to show the jurors that Sarah Widmer's brain was not preserved when it was examined by the coroner. Now, when a brain is not preserved and you slice into it, it disintegrates like jello that has not set. In fact, that was the exact wording that was used in court. 
right along those lines. He said it was it's like jello that hasn't set. Okay, that's gross. And they showed it to the jury. So they showed you something that looked like jello. They showed the, the pig brain and they show when you cut mm-hmm. it, it disintegrates. They also showed that when the brain is preserved and you cut it, it stays together like Velveeta cheese. That, again, was the analogy and that was used. And is also gross. It's very gross. But there was a second autopsy done by one of the foremost experts in the world. A guy named Dr. Werner Spitz did the second autopsy on Sarah, which was also extremely unusual because usually there's just one autopsy and then experts for the defense will give their opinions after they review everything. In this case, unbeknownst at the time to the prosecution and the official types in Warren County, the defense hired Dr. Werner Spitz to look at Sarah Widmer and to do his own autopsy. Now, because she was already autopsied once and that brain wasn't preserved, he wouldn't know which sections he was specifically looking at in the brain without having any landmarks to look at. Dr. Spitz was actually quite interesting because he handles some of the world's biggest cases. He's been involved for like 60, 70 years now. Um, cases this is not in, his first case. Right? right. Like I'm talking big, big name cases. Like he's had a hand in the John Benet Ramsey case. He was on the stand for uh, Casey Anthony case, the Florida mother who was accusing mm-hmm. the death of her daughter. Uh, Kaylee, big case that happened right around the same time as the Widmer case. Um, so he, he, he has had his hand in a lot, a lot of cases. But it was just interesting for him to say, in his opinion, that the facts in the Widmer case make the manner of Sarah Widmer's death undeterminable, not just undetermined, but undeterminable by anybody, including me, is what he stated. So I thought that was really an interesting aspect of the case, Dr. Spitz. For a time, they actually had to delay the case because he almost died after he swallowed a chicken bone. The doctor did? He swallowed a chicken bone and it perforated his colon. Okay, that's weird. There were, again, so, so had to stop many. the trial because the doctor almost died because the chicken bone. This was in between one of the cases going to trial. Oh, wow. And then in the third trial, in one of the trials, they actually had to read out. In fact, it was because of the chicken bone. They had to read out loud into the court record his testimony from one of the other trials. So the clerk of courts had to sit there and read for the jury his testimony from the prior trial. That is weird. You got a chicken bone and you got pig brains. That's, uh... I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. Between trial two and trial three, a woman suddenly came forward and alleged that Ryan Woodmer had confessed to killing Sarah. Now, we heard that there was a mystery witness. We didn't hear anything about what this witness would say or what was this all about. We just knew there was a new witness that had come forward. And we're going, wow, I was wondering whether it was like a jailhouse snitch or something like that. Again, we didn't know what the witness was going to say. Now, this was a woman who lived in Iowa. And when Ryan Widmer's case was featured on Dateline, many people came out of the woodwork and contacted him, including this woman. Well, they struck up, you know, he says it's a friendship. She said it was more. But like a jailhouse romance sort of thing. Well, he he was in he was 
just talking to her on the phone okay. and email and chat and things like that. So he wasn't in jail at the time. No, he was out on bond. but And so he was allowed to have phone conversations with whomever. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was she, uh, what happened was <laughs> <laughs> she alleged that during uh, one phone call that he made a drunken admission to killing his wife and that she was trying to reassure him and tell him, oh, it's okay, you're not a monster and whatever. Well, to try to debunk that, The defense put on a woman who was on the phone with him six minutes before the alleged confessional phone call. And she said he was neither drunk nor upset. So did he become drunk and upset sometime in the six minute span between these two phone calls was the the statement defense made to say this was improbable. And also the woman who alleged the confession, uh, she was on methadone and had a lot of things kind of going on where... They attacked her credibility big time. And I don't know whether this is true, but there were things that she stated that couldn't be possibly true. For example, I found something that didn't show up at all ever in Ryan's trials. And that was the fact that at the time that she said he called her, she said she was asleep and the phone call woke her up. Well, that couldn't possibly be true if two text messages went from her phone to his phone right before that call came in. Was she asleep or not asleep? There were all these inconsistencies. There's no way she was asleep if texts are going from her phone to his phone. And this was something his lawyers did not bring up. I actually feel like despite some of the things that I found out, his lawyers were very passionate in defending him. But there are mistakes made in every case by both sides. And I had the benefit of Monday morning quarterbacking years later and digging right. through files at my leisure instead of in the heat of preparing for a trial. thought right. that was quite interesting mm-hmm. to see that nobody brought up these two text messages, yet her assertion was, well, the reason that she thought it was two in the morning was that she was asleep, but instead it was 10 o'clock at night. And so that was her ex- explanation well I was asleep so that's why I thought it was 2 a.m. but it was really 10 p.m. because she wasn't able to show the call at first like until they got her phone records Mm -hmm. look there's no phone call between 2 and 3 a.m. when you said he called oh what must be this one at 10 o'clock at night that raised a lot of concerns about whether to believe this lady huh it's a crazy trial oh yeah can you see why I had so many unanswered questions about it and the sad thing is I still have a lot of unanswered questions and I'm hoping that eventually some of these questions may be answered one way or another but was there anything though that to say that prosecution and the 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 police department they will be in cahoots to go after this guy or or is it just a matter of them having tunnel vision well there are differing opinions about that too one of the opinions that i've heard expressed is that maybe they're initially developed the tunnel vision but when other questions started to be raised there was maybe a pride that they they were too proud to back away from it but then again I love to quote this one juror who I interviewed. I asked her whether she thought it was right that Ryan was convicted, and I shared with her some of the additional findings. And I did find some new things I'll mention in a minute. She said, you know, I'm not God. I wasn't in that bathroom. I don't know what really happened. I could say the same thing. Any of us could say that same thing. And I've often heard people say, only Ryan knows what happened in that bathroom. But I like to counter that and say, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he wasn't there. Maybe he really was watching television and came up and found her the way he said he did. Maybe. What did you find out about them as people? What were they like? Well, this is the other thing that makes a lot of people wonder whether this guy was capable of this. And that is Sarah, her personality was go-getter, take charge, 
don't take any you-know-what from anybody. And Ryan, as I got to know Ryan while interviewing him for this book, I found it to be consistent with my impression that Ryan is a very acquiescent person. Yes, whatever you say was his posture with Sarah, according to some of the people who knew the couple and who testified about that in court, and just people that I heard outside the courtroom or who approached me in between any of the court proceedings. So Ryan is viewed as being this kind of laid back, relaxed, doesn't get his feathers ruffled over anything kind of guy. So how does he suddenly launch into a murderous rage is the question on the part of people who know him. The people who didn't know Ryan, I think were more apt to easily look at the circumstances and think, what are the chances that she actually drowned from? Um, you know Dora Burke? Yes. Dayton detective for a long time. He yeah, I always him. really liked Doyle while I was here in Dayton. He was still a detective up here when I worked here, and I had a nice relationship with him. I think he works in the um, coroner's office yes, in Warren he, County now. And he was working there at the time this case developed as well. And he actually is the only official type person who had an interview with Ryan Widmer. And that interview only lasted somewhere between three and five minutes. And it was at the hospital right after Ryan right? was yeah. pronounced dead. Well, one thing he always says is that anybody can kill. <laughs> like, right. And uh, you hate to think of it in those terms where you go, well, anybody can kill. That means I could kill or you could kill or anybody. Under the right circumstances, anybody can kill. Just my coverage of crime is some of the most surprising people have killed. I would agree with that. Yeah. For sure. I mean, over the years, some of the things that, that I've seen as a reporter and just as a citizen who follows the news and the different cases that make the news. Right. National news. But once again, I do feel like the media tends to create a persona of a person that may or may not be accurate. For example, in the Widmer case, Sarah's family was very reluctant to talk to anybody. And I really don't know what their story is because they've never really shared it. What is their story? They start out really, really supporting him and then just backed away from him by their actions. But you don't know why. They never have stated why. Did they give a victim impact statement? Nope. They nope. didn't. Oh, nope. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So they just disappear from the whole conversation? The mother of Sarah Widmer was there, but she did not make a statement. She passed up that opportunity. I would never judge somebody for doing that. It seems to me just my impression was that they're very private people and I kind of heard that from other people and just, you know, behavior. But you do wonder what caused them to change, apparently change their view of Ryan. When I asked Ryan Widmer about that, he told me that there was never any kind of a confrontation, never any explanation to him as to why that posture changed. So I thought that was kind of interesting and different because, as you know, a lot of times the family of a homicide victim, if there's a conviction, they will stand up in court and let, really let it yeah, rip. Let them have it, that's for sure. Because there's a lot it. of emotion, obviously, mm-hmm. when you've got the loss of a life. What was the motive that they came up with? Well, that's another interesting angle. I, I don't remember what the motive was. Well, that's because there was never a motive that was established. There were theories about motives, but there was never any actual proof. For example, there was an accusation that Sarah may have seen that he was looking at porn on the computer and this led to some kind of a big bite that led to her death. But the problem with that is 
the computer report that I viewed finally after many years of trying to see it showed that these files were deleted immediately after they were viewed. And so the computer expert even testified in a closed door hearing, which again, I obtained that transcript. And it showed that the chances of Sarah seeing this were so small, unless she was, you know, a computer expert herself and knew how to dig into a computer and, and spend the time doing that and find these deleted files, that the likelihood of her knowing that he had seen some kind of quote unquote racy pictures online right. was rather small. Um, and maybe she was fine with it, frankly. A lot of people... And that's another argument that I've heard. But other people were appalled, like, oh, he's newlywed. Why would he be doing that? She's a beautiful girl. And why wouldn't he just be satisfied with that? And I was thinking to myself how if I'm Sarah Widmer's mother, I would find that to be probably pretty tough to swallow. But that information didn't necessarily come out in court. The judge actually did not let that information be presented in court because of the computer forensic report and that expert's testi- um, testimony in the closed door hearing about it. Um, so that information only came out publicly because this was a very interesting phenomenon. After the first trial, the prosecutor had a news conference where she, Rachel Hussle was the prosecutor at the time, brought out this information, which we hadn't really heard about. It was, some people argue, her way to justify what was an unpopular verdict that's very unusual as you know oftentimes when someone's convicted of murder the public is you know let him fry you know let him you know rot in jail and prison and right you know that didn't happen in this case there was a lot of public outcry like where is the evidence all we have is you know it seems suspicious that the bathroom's dry and that head of sarah widmer is wet but there's not as much dryness there's dryness all over the place but she was found in the bathtub, right? Um, when he found her, he said she was in the bathtub, but he did end up removing her from the tub. The theory of the prosecution is that he removed her before calling 911 and then lied and, and staged a lot of stuff that was happening on the 911 call. But again, there are two ways of looking at this. Some of his statements about her positioning face up, face down changed. Were those simple misstatements or is that a cover story for murder? But I always ask myself, if he killed her how would it benefit him to say one thing versus another it doesn't all the years i've studied court cases and read fiction and nonfiction books about murder cases usually if somebody's story changes in a way that would have benefited them for example i wasn't at the pizza parlor i was down the road at you know johnny's house that's an alibi that you can think of okay there, that would be a reason to, to lie and make up, you know, where you were. But what would be the reason? And no one has ever been able to answer that for me. What would be his motivation for saying on purpose that she was face up versus face down? And so is it possible that that was a simple slip of the tongue? In fact, I caught myself in discussing this case with people mixing it up when I would talk about it. And I could see where if you were, you know, under the pressure of a 911 call, you might misspeak, especially a person like Ryan. That's the other weird wrinkle of this whole thing. As I've gotten to know Ryan and spoken to people who know him, I think his communication skills are better now just by the process of being more mature. Ten years have passed since this happened. But his communication skills were never viewed as the best. For example... What did he do for a living? Well, actually, he did work in a sports marketing job. 
But he received a most improved award from a Dale Carnegie course that he attended, which a lot of people interpret that, well, he had a lot of room for improvement. Just not the most precise communicator. I would ask him a question and he would give me just a very general answer. This is throughout the entire time that I've researched the book, which I spoke to him weekly on the phone and also would go up and see him at least monthly during a research stage of my book. I at first was wondering, is he being evasive on purpose because he has something to hide? But then the more I had contact with him, the more I spoke to people who also know him. And sometimes I would be at the visiting room with him and watch how he interacted with other visitors who happened to be there at the same time because several people can be there at once, you know, visiting the same person. It became clear to me that this is just his pattern, that he's just not a super detailed person. He's the kind of person, in my view, who if you asked him, hey, how was that movie? Oh, it was fine. Me, I'm the kind of person, and I'd be like, oh, the lighting effect was great, but the plot wasn't believable, and acting was really good with this actor, but this other actor, not so much. I would give a pretty long, like an essay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where is he at now? He is incarcerated at the um, Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio, which is outside of Columbus. So really, if he had 15 years, is he, is he now five more years left? Is that He's it? He's about halfway through because he was out on bond while the case was pending for a lot of it. He also had some credit for time served while he was incarcerated after the first conviction and different times he was put in and didn't have bond yet uh, posted. So... He's about midway through the minimum 15 years. Now, the interesting thing about when he could possibly get out is that if he is still maintaining that he didn't do it, a lot of people who know the parole system say that's viewed as lack of remorse. And so maybe that would work against him if he still tries to say that I didn't do it. But I've also heard stories of people who say maybe change that in hopes that they then will get out, and then that's held against them, I've heard. Well, how did you make the leap from being a reporter who covered this story to an author who's writing a book about it? Great question. Um, I was scared to death to write this book. Okay. <laughs> because, as you know, when you write a news article, that's usually over with. You write it today, it's in the paper or online right now, tonight, or paper tomorrow, and and you're on to the next thing. I did do some more investigative projects that took a few months to do, but nothing that took this long, about 18 months total. This is way after you left the Inquirer. Yes, it is. So I left the Inquirer. I hated to leave journalism, but just saw that the economics of the business were no longer favorable and I had survived five rounds of layoffs and I could just see that if I didn't leave of my own accord, it was a matter of time before I was going to be laid off. So I tried my hand in some other different businesses and I always missed writing. And so that's part of your answer as to why I wrote this book. I I missed writing. The other reality is this, couldn't get this case off my mind. It haunted me. It tormented me. It puzzled me. I just couldn't let it go. And finally, my husband says to me, you know this case better than anybody. You will never forgive yourself if you don't write a book on it. 
He said, go ahead, quit your full-time job. What were you doing? At that time, I was in the insurance business. I became an insurance agent and did that for three years. And I did pretty well, but it really wasn't my passion. It was kind of a way to earn a living. But I do think it was a great move for me from the standpoint. I learned a lot. But I used to joke and say I went from one reviled profession to another because no one wants to talk to a reporter or to an insurance agent. I also, for years, had done some things in the fitness industry, even on the side while I was here in Dayton. I started teaching fitness class on the side. I ended up quitting that full-time job and took on some part-time. You, I mean, you kind of just breeze past that, but you're like a bodybuilder. <laughs> like My husband and I do dabble in. He actually became a professional. I'm not professional, but I'm really, really proud of the fact that he became a professional bodybuilder at age 52. <laughs> so he does really, really well, and I do pretty well. It's interesting. A lot of people have a misperception. They think you do bodybuilding because you just like to strut yourself and show off, but really... It's just a way to have a goal, just like people who run marathons, they train for that and that's a goal. For us, our goal is to get as lean as we can while retaining as much muscle as we can. As natural bodybuilders, that's a huge challenge. And it also helps us just to stay within healthy limits because a lot of times there are temptations everywhere you go. (laughs) Bad food, bad drinks, things that are going to have you put on weight. And just not be good for you. So it gives us another reason to say no to that donut (laughs) or whatever is kind of passing in front of you at the time. That's not to say that we're perfect in any way, but it does give us something we do together. He told you to go ahead and just like quit that full time job and devote it to this story. Well, he said, bring as much money in as you can, you know, doing your fitness uh, related jobs, which then I had three of those teaching class and doing personal training and also then doing freelance writing. So I kept my hand in writing and continued to do some freelance writing for the Associated Press for Cincy Magazine, then for the Cincinnati Inquirer, I turned in an excerpt from my book. But I enjoyed the process of writing the book because it was a new challenge for me. It was actually a lot more fun than writing a news article. And I say fun, even though it's a murder case, because as a writer, you feel a large amount of satisfaction from being able to be more descriptive than a news article ever lets you be. Uh, Back when I first started in the news business, after I graduated from Kent State University, there was a lot more space that writers were allowed to fill with their articles. I would write a whole feature article about little kids and their Santa Claus wish list and just charming little story about the little kids and how they looked when they sat on Santa's lap. And that sort of thing would just be handled with a couple of photos and a caption probably today. Occasionally you might get a nice little feature story along those lines, very rarely these days because just the nature of how the news business has changed. So I noticed then as time went by, the first thing the editors would cut would be what we call the color, right? the descriptions, the ability to sit there and say, she had on a beautiful blue sparkling necklace that caught the light. She leaned to one side. But you have to pick those details depending on what you're trying to convey. And that was one of the biggest challenges is picking the detail that I felt conveyed the story and were important for the reader to picture, for example, when we were all in the courtroom for the first time, I wanted to share the sense of tension because there was build up, build up, build up about this case, just what it was like in that courtroom to sit there and wait for everything to get started and to unfold and for, before our very eyes. So he went to trial three times. So that's what, um, 
36 people mm-hmm. the, on the jury, convicted twice and hung jury the one time. What do you think it was that made the people convict him? Well, it's interesting to consider that question in light of, I didn't exhaustively go through all jurors, but the jurors who spoke publicly to me and to others didn't really give a scenario for how did this happen and how did the pattern of injuries occur. Ron of Ryan's lawyers put it this way in response to your question. He said he thinks that people don't want to accept a question mark, like we don't know what happened to her, as a possibility. They would rather have an explanation. It's easier to say he killed her than to say, There might have been a medical condition. Look at all these possibilities that weren't checked. I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. And also, Ryan's brother, this was a quote that stood out to me. He said, if you can't tell me how he did it or why he did it, how did you convict him? And when I asked jurors about that, the one juror said to me, well, I didn't like his demeanor in the courtroom. And I reported that in the book, that that's what was stated. I'd heard that from quite a few jurors, people I interviewed directly or were interviewed by other media and I I saw the interviews kind of thing. On the record, there were many jurors who stated they just didn't like his demeanor. And then other people counter that and say, is that really fair to convict somebody, for example, if they aren't reacting badly to seeing autopsy photos for how many times now that he'd seen them when the case went to trial the third time. The lawyers for Ryan Whitmer believes that people have a predisposition to convict, that despite the presumption of innocence, that jurors already want to believe the people in authority. They want to believe the police. They want to believe the prosecutor. They want to believe the coroner or medical examiner because they want to believe all those people are competent and truthful and doing their jobs well. Those are all public servants that we rely on. They don't want to consider the possibility that mistakes were made or perhaps something was actually purposely done to not look at the entire picture of possibilities, the entire realm of possibilities in this case. That's the only way I can think of to answer your question is based on what Ryan's lawyers say. I don't know what, again, some of the other people would say, but the lawyers and the jurors were the main people that I talked to who would be able to address that. What do you think this whole case says about our justice system, if, if that's the truth? Well, the justice system, based on my perception of this case and others, I'd like to answer this this way. One of my high school teachers put it this way. Our judicial system stinks, but it's still the best in the world. So there are flaws. There are mistakes that are made. Is this a case where that happened? I don't know. But I think it's quite possible, and I do bring out those possibilities for people to consider. And I do think there is a tendency for people to perhaps jump to conclusions, not just with this case, but in a lot of things we see in our daily lives. We take a little tiny bit of information that stems back, as I understand it, to our roots throughout evolution. We had to, back in the caveman days, look at someone and go friend or foe, good or bad. If we sat and considered the full context of everything, we'd drive ourselves crazy. But when it comes down to something like deciding guilt or innocence of a person, how often do jurors really have the capability, which is, I think, a pretty superhuman effort to set aside their emotions and decide based on evidence and logic. There are a lot of concerns about wrongful convictions where people have served 20, 
or 30 years, and we're now finding out through DNA and other means that these people were sitting in prison all that time. And jurors who thought for sure that these people were guilty. There's a lady I I met who wrote a book called Picking Cotton, which has now been picked up to be a movie. Her name is Jennifer Thompson. The reason it's called Picking Cotton is because the gentleman that she said raped her had the last name Cotton. She picked him out of a lineup, and she was sure this was the man who raped her. And this was before DNA evidence was available. Guess what? DNA came out and showed, excluded him as being the person who could have done this to her. And she and that man, despite his wrongful conviction, ended up becoming friends and writing this book together. It's fascinating. And I heard her speak at a place called the Mercantile Library in Cincinnati, Ohio. The justice system usually gets it right. But the problem is when there are questions about how a case was handled, once a case gets started, it's really hard even after the indictment to go back and say, guess what? This was wrong. This was, how do you fix it at that point? Never mind about that murder charge, you know? Oops, right. Yeah. Right. It, mm-hmm. And see, that's the concern that I have is I, I don't know. I wasn't in that bathroom. I don't know what happened there. But I do know there are a lot of questions that do seem to be very legitimate about the entire case. Well, hey, thanks, Janice, for coming in here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening in on the What Happened Was podcast. I told you that story was a doozy. You can find Janice Heisel's book on her website or thesubmergedbook.com. That's thesubmergedbook.com. You can also find it in online bookstores. We have some mighty fine What Happened Was episodes coming up of all variety. If you want to have a say in what comes up next, join my Facebook group, What Had Happened Was Advisors. You can find it from my uh, main Facebook page. Until next time, see you later, alligator. Alligator.